Welcome to Wine and Murder Night, a podcast where two friends discuss, and drink to, their favorite cozy mysteries. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. And I'm Sabrina Malshausen. What sparks joy for you, Sabrina? (laughs) Okay, I'm not a minimalist minimalist, but I move so much that I don't have a lot of stuff. So, Mm -hmm. like, I do have a two-bedroom apartment, but, like, I don't know. It's just weird. Like, I don't have a lot of crap. And it's from my mother, who never had a lot of crap. And, you know, so... It's kind of weird. Like, things don't spark joy for me, eh? (laughs) I'm a communist, (laughs) so I don't have to buy anything to maintain my identity as a human being. Thank you. (laughs) And two, it's hard to move shit across oceans. That is true. That is very true. So, how are you? But you were do- you've been doing some Marie Kondoing, is that right? Like, you've been talking about it. I have, but it's just that. So, I don't like folding, but she inspired me to do my pajama draw. Both of my pajama drawers, actually. I have two, like one for winter and one for summer. And then, um, but I, since I don't have a lot of stuff, like, my Marie Kondo is a very small pile. And I can very, I very easily get rid of things because it's, you know, I don't need it. It's out of date. It's, you know, whatever, whatever. So I liked her show, but I was harshly judging all the fucking people. I'm like, how do you have, (laughs) I was like, how do you have this much shit? Like, come the fuck on. Like the flight attendant. I'm like, you don't have a stable residence. Come the fuck on. Why do you have all this shit? Like I was very. She had a lot of clothes. She was a clothes for hoarder, which I feel. I'm not a clothes hoarder, so. I I just moved also like about a year, not a year ago, a little over a year ago. So I got rid of so much shit, Mm -hmm. but like I've actually like full on like mentally designated March as my Marie Kondo month because also in moving there were so many boxes that I didn't have a chance to actually go through that had just been sitting out in the garage, and. While I donated, like, a large portion of my belongings to Goodwill before I moved, I still have boxes that I have not looked through since, like, college. Because I just didn't have time. That's... Yeah. No. No. <laughs> um, no. Your mom doesn't keep any of your stuff in her garage or anything like that? Well, we don't have a garage. <laughs> I have a carpool. I do have... I do have. We don't have a garage, Carolyn. We don't have a garage. <laughs> I I do have two boxes in her shed. One is has my yearbooks in them from high school, and I really want to just keep my senior yearbook. So that's mm-hmm. what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw it away. I'm going to recycle the rest of them. Give them to a local library. Yeah. Libraries keep that shit. Yeah, but I don't want. They're full of signatures and things like that. That's mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so um, I'm going to keep my senior yearbook. And then, like, the other one is full of stuffed animals from my childhood, and one doesn't get rid of that. <laughs> so, and, oh, no, no, I have a box of board games that I probably will just give to friends who like board games. Um, yeah. So, it's just, I just don't have a lot of stuff. My mother doesn't have a lot of stuff. 
And every year when we do, when she decorates her house, every year she, she pairs down on her decorations. Like she decorates for everything like Valentine's and St. Patrick's Day and, oh, and, gosh. and Thanksgiving and, and Christmas and all that. So every year when we, when we do the decorations, she's like, I don't really need this. So every year we pair down. That was the craziest thing that I realized having just moved. This was my second Christmas in this house because I moved like September last year. Mm-hmm. But before I left Texas, I had gotten rid of all of my Christmas wrapping paper and boxes and everything. Mm-hmm. And so it was like one of those things where it's like I looked in the closet where I keep, you know, that stuff. And I'm like, oh, I need to go buy all of that again. <laughs> 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 All the all this stuff, all my decorations are just things my mother didn't want, and that I took a shining <laughs> to, so I took them. But they're not a lot. The most decorations I have is for Christmas. I have two things that I put up for Valentine's, which I put up in February and keep for the whole month. The best thing that somebody could get me for Christmas right now is just gift bags. <laughs> <laughs> See, and that's the thing. I don't buy them because my mother has them all, so I just go to her place and get them. And. That's the, that's the... But what if you need one, like, in a pinch? Um, what do you mean? Like, immediately. Like, you forgot to wrap your present for the, like, Secret Santa exchange. Um, I buy all my presents at once. Ugh, God, stop being so... Wrap them? Reliable and... (laughs) Stop being so German about it, Sabrina. Stop being so German about it. Well, what are you drinking tonight? <laughs> oh, okay. I'm drinking an Apothic, and it's a winemaker's white wine blend. I got it at Sprouts, and the label is beautiful, but I bought it because it was $10, and I didn't buy the... Oh, no. S- no, I didn't buy the $7, the $7 wine, because it was either... It was going to be a $7 Moscata, or <laughs> this. So I got this, but the... The label is actually beautiful, but that's not why I bought it. I bought it because it was ten dollars, and I know how much Carol bitches about my five dollars. So, well, see, now I'm like worried that you're like, oh shit, it was ten dollars. This better be the best fucking wine I've ever had. No, 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 no. I was just like, I'm gonna get a ten dollar wine. So Carol can't bitch. When I when I don't have a wine and we're going to record, I go to Sprouts, and it's not because. It's not cheap. It's not the cheapest place. But it's like, it's a straight shot and it's directly between my school and my house. So (laughs) I could go to the Kroger, but that's making a left turn. And I hate left turns. So I just go straight and just make... They probably make some real good money off of teachers. I am drinking the other bottle I picked up at the fancy wine store by my work. I got the, this was on sale. It's the Tarantas Tempranillo. It's a 2015. And Tempranillo is probably my favorite, one of my favorite kinds of wine. Oh. For sure. It's a very dry, light-ish white wine, or white wine, red wine. It is very red. I'm looking at it. Uh-huh. <laughs> but... Definitely, definitely a wine that sparks joy for me. Ah, yes. Are you ready to get right into it? Yes. Well, we're going to see what sparks joy in this. I feel like I'm just overusing it. It's not even funny anymore. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) 
<laughs> nothing. <laughs> to be honest, this is a very sad episode. So nothing sparks joy in anyone. <laughs> we to this week, we're watching Agatha Christie's Marple, season four, episode one, A Pocket Full of Rye. Bing! <laughs> new year, new Marple! <laughs> Oh my god, I was drinking and it nearly went up my nose. <laughs> I'm sorry, I really should have waited to, for her to come into the show to say that, but I, <laughs> I wrote it down. I was so happy with that joke. I, was I wrote it down. I, I wrote, they cleaved, and I actually wrote they cleaved quite close oh, to the did. book in this one. It was, I thought, of, of a lot of the ones that we have watched, one of the better scripted episodes nothing felt particularly um horned in no and it's because it is the you know the splices away to show what they were doing before all the action happened didn't really happen Mm. in the book Um, oh yeah because the book actually starts with rex fortescue dying which it does quite quickly in the television show yeah So, so we get right into it with uh watching a woman Gladys, that we come to learn, putting on a surprising amount of makeup, mm-hmm. um, going off to be a maid at a resort, mm-hmm. and does rather an emotional farewell with Miss Marple, who had kind of been training up her up to be mm-hmm. a uh, a lady's maid, basically, um, a household maid. Yes. But then the very next scene after we get to see, you know, British people having feelings is uh, nine months later where it like we're like transported immediately to like a busy office with all these lovely women sitting and answering phones for consolidated investments trust. Limited. Consolidated investments limited. Oh, sorry. No worries. And uh, we get Mr. Fortescue. Who Rex is a five British actor. Cheerio, back soon. I don't know, somehow I miss you. I love you, that's why I'm Cheerio, not goodbye. And who is he played by, Sabrina? Ken, Kenneth Cranham. <laughs> He's a Midsummer Murders alum, and he was also in Hot Fuzz. Oh, yay! I love when we get Hot Fuzz representatives. I love that film. I haven't seen it in a while. I think I might have to watch it again, but I love it. Absolutely. But he is pretty busy leering at his secretary as she brings him his tea for the morning. That was the weirdest thing, because in the book, they were like, not only do they not have anything... Fortescue had just recently be ma- been married to a young, beautiful woman. So they like I was like, why would you? That's weird. But, you know, whatever. It's 1953. Men leer. Oh, yeah. I mean, shit, man. It's 2019. Men leer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, New Year, same leer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, Shakespeare's I dead, so up. King Lear wouldn't be very different. <laughs> I was working trying to figure out how we could make that joke, but it didn't come to me. Uh, <laughs> oh, then... King Lear! Jesus Christ! Yeah. It's Rex Fortescue! He's King Lear! <laughs> we 
we go straight from the office where he's taking tea to a couple having sex in a Paris hotel and we don't really know who they are or what they're talking about except that uh, I love that it's implied that British men go down on women which, <laughs> I did not catch that <laughs> which actually is way true like British men are way more likely to go down on you than American men I've found in my experience I could believe that I could straight I could 100% believe that like British, British America, men just, just do I don't know. Well, I mean, white America was founded by Puritans. So. <laughs> I mean, very true. But the Brits kicked them out. They were like, you're, you're a bit much. That's my point. You're the Brits were much. like, we go down. <laughs> <laughs> you can't stay. Well, the Puritans are like, stay. the further you go down, the closer to hell. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we got we to gotta stay above the belt to get the hell <laughs> Oh god, I don't know if I'm gonna recover from that. <laughs> last last episode, it's all about rabbits. This week, it's all about cunnilingus. Whatever, whatever. There was a there was a shocking amount of sex in this show, and it made me uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, Same. I wasn't gonna talk about it, but like, or I was, but I wasn't gonna talk about it yet. But yes, I wasn't into I, it. I wasn't into it. I wasn't into it either. I think it was because of the director. <laughs> Um, well, obviously it was because the director, but like this episode was directed by a man Mm. and, oh, it was directed by Charlie Palmer. No. Yeah. Um, and it's not to say that some of the episodes that we haven't, all of the episodes I think we've seen, almost all of them have been directed by men. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, except for Ordeal by Innocence was not directed by, Mm -hmm. was directed by a woman, but he directs two oh. Death and Paradises. He does. Mm-hmm. I bet he's a. And, I bet he's a perv. And three marbles, and a Midsummer Murders, and like six episodes of Doctor Who. <laughs> Why? It's the five British directors. <laughs> Man, yeah, he really likes them uh, mysteries. He does Poldark as well, but fuck Poldark. Oh, and Poirot. Uh, yeah, but I thought it was very... I thought the directing in this episode was a little bit... It, it reminded me actually a lot of At Bertram's, where it yeah. kind of had that cheesy feel, a little mm-hmm. bit corny, but it wasn't as cartoonish as At Bertram's. See, I think it wasn't... This was, like, for me, it was, like, it was modern for the sake of being modern. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like, it had... I don't... No, can you explain a little bit more? So... It was, it was trying to be, you know, it was trying to be a, a Scandi Noir with all the sex and a kind of weird, like, the weird camera angles, like, the, the weird camera the angles. Dutch, the Dutch, oh, the Dutch tilt is what it's called when you go, when you close up on someone and go at an angle, that's called a Dutch tilt. And so, um, so it was, like, it was trying to be a Scandi Noir, but it still had brighter, cozy coloring see it didn't feel scandi noir at all to me but it did feel clownish it, i don't know if it was the the weird close-up camera angles plus the bright and weird coloring and you know there's some scenes where the coloring was dark like crump scene when he's doing mm-hmm. the uh the rhyme that's a it was yeah. a, that was a scandi noir scene 
because of the weird like close-up on his face and then it tilts like i feel like he was putting in these modern elements because it's a it's a new marble so they're trying new things but it didn't quite work because everything when he tried those modern elements everything was slightly overacted in those modern yeah so that's what i agree that's that's what it felt to me i can see that i think overall i wasn't nearly as i i wasn't enamored of the directing i thought the acting was fine the acting was fine but when it was when it was like supposed to be deep and mysterious it came off kind of hokey Yes, that's exactly, hokey is the exact right word for it. Well, so this- we're all, I'm having, sorry, we're always all over the place, but when I've just watched <laughs> something, like things stick in my head and then I have to talk about it. <laughs> no, that's good. That's what we're here for. So we see this couple having sex very loudly in a Paris hotel and we don't really know who they are, but we do know that daddy, who is implied to have a decent amount of money, has finally come round and next time they stay in Paris, it'll be at the Ritz. Yeah, the the actor is is a five British actor. Cheerio, back soon. I don't know somehow. I miss you. I love you. That's why I. Cheerio, not goodbye. I recognized him not this scene because I couldn't see his face yeah. very well, but I recognized him the minute he was like for real, for real introduced. He's he's one of my he's one of my favorite. British actors, I've seen... He's like Sean Bean in that I've seen all his stuff. Oh, right. We've talked about him before. It's Mr. Graves. It's Mr. Rupert Graves. Um, who plays... We don't know that he's Lancelot, but he's Lancelot Fortescue. And he's Lestrade in Sherlock, um, where he plays a dilf. (laughs) He is a dilf, let's be completely honest. Um... He was in Last Tango in Halifax. He's he's in the first episode of Death in Paradise, which he was a whole reason I started watching Death in Paradise, actually, because he was in it. Um, but then I fell in love with it. He's in V for Vendetta. Um, one of my favorite films of his is Morris. And he has been working since 1978. Yeah. And Morris came out in 1987, and it was a gay... He plays a um, gay farmhand or something, kind of a gay working class guy who takes Morris's virginity, and he's really kind of a rough. Uh, he's a rough bit, an old rough piece, and um, he had to like in 1987 he had to like defend playing this gay part, and he was like, "This doesn't. It doesn't mean I'm gay. It means I'm acting, and you know, it's something you know." And he was also in A Room with a View. So both of those films back to your act, like the turn of the century, like scandalous kind of films, which I love. Also, he was in this film called Pride. Pride is a live action lion film. So it's like the live action Lion King, except not really the Lion King. And he voices one of the lions and Sean Bean voices one of the lions. (laughs) So I watched this. Obviously, I watched Pride. (laughs) Came came out like 2004. And my my mother sat and watched me watch it and was like, my god it's so strange so yeah so where on the sean bean scale does rupert graves rate is he a tom hardy or like where okay on the sean bean scale we need to 
We need to put the low end. Who is the least attractive man you can think of? Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On the scale of Benedict Cumberbatch to Sean Bean, where does Rupert Graves rate? So Tom Hardy is closer to Sean Bean. <laughs> And Rupert Graves is higher than Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy has oh, Tom, wow. Tom Hardy has squint teeth and uh, and that's what's cute about him. No, it's cute, but it's not sexy. Like I disagree, strong disagree, but that's fine. This is not my scale. Um, I like Tom Hardy's body, but I like Rupert Graves' face. Like Tom Hardy is beautiful. Like he's got a great body. And like he's got a he's got an interesting face, but it's not pretty. You know I will see. But Wow, we do not have the same taste in men at all. <laughs> but Rupert see, he was pretty, but he's aged out of pretty and into interesting, which is great. I like that. Into it. So into it. All Rupert Graves, Tom Holly, and Sean Bean are all away from Benedict Cumberbatch. They're all <laughs> hiding at the opposite end of the scale. <laughs> like, like, mixing up. But Sean Bean is only at the top of the scale because I've loved him the longest. <laughs> so, once we figure out who Rupert Graves is playing... We cut right back to Consolidated Investments Limited, and the secretary's alarm uh, uh, buzzer calm. Yeah, the buzzer buzzer keeps going off, and she bursts into Fortescue's office, and she's like, "Sir, are you okay?" And he chokes to death. What the hell did you put in the tea? We get um, our Inspector Neil. Five British actor, and I love this. Here I am, back soon. I don't know somehow. I wish um, I love you. That's why I. Nigeria, not goodbye. <laughs> Who is he? He's Matthew McFadden. He's in Howard's End with Benedict Cumberbatch. He's in Ripper Street, and he's in he's 2005's Mr. Darcy. Prime Prejudice. So he's just a five version of Mr. Darcy. But he's in a terrible show called Spooks. And I've talked about Spooks before because somebody else was in Spooks. And it's it's MI5 if MI5 was in a slightly future. Uh, you know what? I did not... Re- I love the 2005 Mr. Er, Pride and Prejudice. And I didn't recognize him at all because he clearly had put on a bunch of weight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, Matthew McFadden's face completely changes. Yeah. When he, he does. Wow. See, the really weird thing is he puts on weight really easily and also gets rid of it. I don't know if that's a weird thing. I can put on weight very easily. But he can also get rid of it pretty easily. Oh, jerk. He's a dude. Oh, he was in 2010's Robin Hood. Let's never speak of that again. (laughs) Well, Inspector Neil shows up and he questions... Miss Grovesner. Oh, he's in uh, Death at a Funeral, too. Oh, my God. Ah, the 2007 version. Um, oh, my God. It's one of my favorite films. Ah, he's the lead character in Death at a Funeral. Oh, my God. Sorry. Sorry. But the Miss Grosner, all she does is say that she's the only one who prepares the tea, and she's the only one who touches the cup and saucer, and whatever, whatever. Later, the coroner rings the inspector, and this is a weird, this is another scene that 
made me feel like this was very intentionally cartoonish because the scene was kind of staged almost like a diorama. It, it is also intentionally cartoonish in the book too. Like the professor calls up and he goes, hey, hey, two murders in like three weeks. What's going on? So it's funny in the book too. So they may see the thing is they were cleaving so close to the book that they like the book is the book is one of my favorites of Agatha Christie's because mm-hmm. it's an easy read it's fun it's interesting Agatha Christie is all nemesis in this book like it's mm-hmm. it's fun it's a fun read see it's closer to her older stuff than her new, like it's right in the middle when she was at peak because she was actually people believe she she had dementia oh as she was aging she showed signs of dementia and so um her book started getting simplistic and not as good as she aged and she used less words she even they they like counted how many words she used so she even like used less words and so what was weird so that was weird and so she died in 1976 so 1953 is you know 20 years before so she's still good at this point this scene is cartoonish and funny in the book so they translated it pretty well to this to the stage I guess. But the big news that the coroner has is that the Fortescue was poisoned, of course, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the tea. Mm. It was something called taxine, which comes from you. Taxine. Yeah. That comes from you, the tree. Yep. And what do you know? The Fortescues live at Yew Tree Lodge. This was an interesting departure from the book because Yew Tree Lodge is in a modern suburb. Modern, 1953 modern suburb. And it's just a big brick, like, monstrosity. Like, it's a brick mm-hmm. rectangle. <laughs> so they made Yew Tree Lodge this old, like, historically listed building. So that was interesting. I was like, hmm, Interesting. They're probably a prettier and more interesting to view for viewers, I would guess. Also, probably just easier to find. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, and filming. Yeah, but they also because of this phone call, they understand the poison was likely administered at breakfast, um, and the sergeant, uh, Sergeant Pickford, finds cereal, rye to be exact, in the jacket pocket. Of Rex Fortescue. Yes. But as they they arrive, they're not they're greeted by the new housekeeper, Mary Dove. Who is a And I recognize her! Did you recognize her from what I think you recognized her from? I recognized her from Midsummer Murders. Ah, she's also in Death in Paradise, but she's Emily Waltham in Friends. She was in, like, eight episodes. Oh, my God. I didn't even know that. <laughs> I thought she recognized her from Friends. No. I, you know, honestly, I I watched as much Friends as the average person. Not the average person. I watched as much Friends as the casual viewer of nighttime television. I feel like. 90s. See, you're older than but, I am. Oh, sorry. You're older than I am. Not by much. But enough that cultural zeitgeist is a thing. Yeah, and also the fact that I didn't come to America until I was 14. Yeah. I think there's there's definitely some of that where it's like, 
I, I watched it, but no, I don't actually care. I never cared about Friends the way a lot of people cared about uh, Yeah, I don't get it. And one of the actors is in Coupling, which is the British <laughs> Friends, which I care about because I watched it endlessly. So we haven't <laughs> gotten to him yet. But she is, Miss Mary Dove is the new housekeeper. And while none of the Fortescues are around for the inspector to interview, she gives us all sorts of information and a nice little download. So Fortescue had just taken his second wife about a year ago. Her name was Adele. She's younger. Um, she likes golf. AKA. Oh my God. The rich person's full. Agatha Christie is fucking obsessed with golf. All have fun. <laughs> but Adele was more into uh, fucking golf or golf instructors. Yeah, yeah. I looked at Vivian Dubois and he's just, he's just when you need a good looking guy. I like guess. that actor. Yeah, I didn't. No, see, British good looking. Doesn't do it for me. British good looking. No, I feel like he's actually more of just like your typical good looking. Yeah. I wouldn't call him British good looking. He's mild mannered good looking. Yeah. Eh, it's whatever. It doesn't do it for me. No, it did, it did uh, nothing for me either because, like, he had too much fake tan on, which was a thing in 1953, mm-hmm. so I don't know why I'm complaining. They did very well. <laughs> like, uh, 1953 was all about, like, new chemical enhancements to your body. It's the 1950s. Everything was... Well, I mean, that was actually a plot point, frankly. It was, so <laughs> I'm not wrong. So 1950s in... Uh, this is still 1953. Rich people didn't have to worry about the food shortages. They didn't have to worry about the, uh, what the fuck is it called? The rationing. They didn't have to worry about the rationing. So it's still 1953. It's still post-war because they mentioned Dunkirk. So you know it's still post-war. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the new thing was like all the stuff science could come up with. Um, and so Yeah, and that's true on so many fronts. Mm-hmm. That was true in not just like beauty products, yeah. but like also true on like if you think about the home, you know, revolution, even in the US, like where there wasn't so much the food rationing in the 50s, but like the transition to cake mix happened in the 50s, where you didn't have to actually bake a cake mm-hmm. every single day from scratch for your kids. And that, granted, that was, like, late 50s, but, like... No, yeah, science and technology was that. a big thing, like, microwaves, and even the telephones. More people had telephones, not just the upper classes. It was the, let's beat the communists, let's beat the Russians, mm-hmm. so they don't become scientifically advanced and take us over. And, and, like, life is shit, let's give ourselves some chemical enhancements so we're not so fucking depressed all the time. And so, like, so... <laughs> Like when Gladys, like when she uh, goes into Gladys's room to look at her stuff, um, she finds that uh, this one injection will turn you into Lana Turner. I fucking wish. What injection? <laughs> what injection? We're not going to talk about the actual plot point, but like that one, I was like, yes. <laughs> um, and the fact that when uh, Agatha Christie was reading uh, the newspaper, Agatha Christie, Marple, when Marple was reading the newspaper, uh, they found the uranium discovered in and so like so all this is like ooh fancy science yeah. and technology oh we'll get the uranium first and bomb the shit out of the Russians ooh <laughs> like we'll sell it for a huge profit yeah so um, uh. <laughs> oh and also that there was a 
communist and nobody wanted him dead. So communists in England, um, so England has a very strong communist background, actually. The Labour Party is an original, like, socialist party, um, no matter what the fuck they're doing right now. <laughs> but they're, you know, they're a workers' party. They're called Les Travaillistes by the Brit, uh, by the French. So they're an actual workers' party. So the communists mm -hmm. were never, like, if you wanted to escape America, where well, they probably would shoot you, you could come to Europe because the communists fought the Nazis and the communists were killed by the Nazis. So being a communist in England was, was only bad when your father is a capitalist and, yeah. you know, her father was a capitalist and that's all. Now, obviously that's changed a little bit because racism is a thing. So like when more, when more, uh, colonies broke apart and more, uh, people from non-white people came from former colonies to Britain for, mm -hmm. uh, for education and more employment opportunities, white workers started to separate from the communist party, um, and the labor party because they were like, no, too many brown people. We can't really, mm -hmm. we don't have anything in common with them because they're brown and horrible. Uh, so, so, <laughs> but in the 1950s, when you were of the lower non-money classes, you were a communist, uh, or at least labor, at least. Sympathetic. To yeah. And labor was sympathetic to the communist party. I feel like the communist thing is more of an American... America saw their chance at influence in a way that they never had before after World War II, and they seized it, and the big thing that was stopping them wasn't Britain on rations, but... Russia. Russia. Well, the USSR. And yes, that's very true. Yeah, the USSR. So, America... So, the idea of competitive competitiveness is a purely capitalistic idea. In communism, there's no really, you don't compete with anyone because you have equal resources and you have equal, you have equal opportunity to the same resources, right? So in pure communism, there's not really any competitiveness. But America, being a capitalist country, is based on competitiveness. So in the fight between capitalism and communism, no matter that Russia's communism was just a bunch of oligarchs telling people what they wanted to hear, um, yeah, it was so, pretty much almost a dictatorship for quite a while. So it wasn't, I'm not saying that Russia's communism yeah, was no, no, no. I'm saying that true communism, the idea of true communism or socialism, two different things, but does not, uh, there was either going to be a right or a wrong and a win and a loser. And the idea of win and a loser and a right and wrong is a capitalist idea because socialism, everybody wins because everyone has equal rights to the same resources. So, but for Americans who are capitalists, by and large, even though they are not actual capitalists, because most Americans don't own the means to capital, but... But they're raised and nurtured at the teat of capitalism. Yeah, they're, they're raised in a capitalist society. So what happens is that Americans looked at the USSR as a competitor, even though the USSR was just trying to be like, let's just eat all of Europe. We're not trying to compete with everyone. We're just going to subsume you into our oligarchy. So, so America was looking at that yeah. like, this is our competition. We want to subsume everyone into our oligarchy, <laughs> and our oligarchy is so much better. And I know someone's out there going, you went to fucking Cambridge, Blah bloody blah, blah. I went to Cambridge on a full scholarship and because of their diversity quota needs. Hello? <laughs> I'm not rich. I was never rich. 
I was lucky as shit that they needed more black people so they wouldn't get fucking sued. <laughs> like, <laughs> so yes, Cambridge made me sound great, but only so I could teach people that Cambridge is a shit capitalist place. Well, speaking of shit capitalists, <laughs> uh, wow. Percival is the oldest and the a partner in the firm. And a uh, fun he's married to. It's Ben Miles from Coupling. He's he plays the Joey Fatone. Literally, my note is, oh, hey, Percy. Oh, really? You find that attractive? <laughs> I find Percy very attractive. Aww. He's not bad. But he is not in a, he's not in oh, a wait, relationship is he the, with wife. Is he the Ross of Coupling? Hold on. Oh, he's the Ross. But a nicer Ross. Like, I like him more. interviews pretty much everybody in the house as they start to come home. Elaine, the daughter, is marked as studious and bookish and not particularly pretty. Um, of course. Because, and... no, because communists can't be pretty. We can't care about She's not the communist, technically. Well, she's she's gonna marry um, one and she kind of feels... She kind of espouses but it's, it. It's one of those, um, it's one of those wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Communist women are all, you know, dumpy and that's why they're communists because they can't get husbands. Fair enough. Gotta have one ration to you. Yeah. Uh, but Percy drops the bomb of the inheritors um, of the will to the inspector, which happened to be himself as a basically the now managing partner of the firm. Um, Adele, the wife, surviving wife, and Elaine, the daughter, um, who gets like 50,000 pounds. Yeah. And Adele gets the bulk of it with 100,000 pounds. But the inspector finds out that Lancelot is not in Kenya. Oh, that was, a, that was a note I had, actually. Hold on. <laughs> Getting to be racist to say Kenya. Anytime you see something filmed in the 1950s where people do come from Kenya, they get to say the old colonialist pronunciation, and you know they just enjoy doing it because they just get to be racist and be like, it's acting, darling. We And we've we've had that happen. We, we talked about this Father on Brown. Uh, Father Brown. Came up in front of Father Brown. I don't remember if we talked about this last time on the podcast, but I know I've talked to you about this. When I went to dinner with a Brexit couple, one was, uh, I went to dinner with two different English couples right after Brexit. And one was a Remain couple and one was a Leave couple. And, uh, but we were talking, my aunt had just taken a job in Tunisia. And I said that and they were like, no, no. They're like, how are you pronouncing it? That's wrong. It's, like, it's no. Tunisia. And it's, and it's Tunisia or something. It was something it didn't, I was like, this would never have ever come out of my mouth like this. It's Tunisia. And that's closer to the French pronunciation. 
which it, yeah, which is the the Tunisie. Like I know the French. Yeah. So what what you need to know is that the Brits, you know, they were invaded by the Normans for six hundred years. So a lot of times, anything that has French in it will be pronounced in a vaguely French way. So they do say Tunisia, French, but wrong. But Lance returns to England like the dramatic bitch he is on a tiny little plane with his beautiful wife, like the prodigal uh, son. Like the, that's what I said. <laughs> but he reveals to Inspector Neil, who greets him at the airport, that he had been offered a position at the firm by his father, and he fully knew when his father offered it that it was kind of a plot against Percy. And he, you can see it. Rupert Graves does such a great job with this role. He like the glee in his eyes at getting to screw the over thing his about brother. Rupert is he's such a fantastic actor that you just and he's so good looking that you're like, mm, yeah, I'm into whatever he does. You're like, yeah, I'm into it. Well, back at Yew Tree Lodge, the clock strikes five. Ish. And Gladys, who has been very suspicious throughout this whole thing, sets the tea tray down and just disappears into the night. So she's like, it's uh, it's 20 till. I love Mary Dove. She actually is my... I am so... I would... Mm, she's hot. No. She's real hot. Well, you're more lesbian than I am. I'm the worst bisexual in the history of the world. <laughs> But yeah, no, she's beautiful, but I just want to be her. Like, she's efficient, she's timely, she's always dressed very well, her hair is done, her makeup's on point. Mary Dove is like my Patronus. I look at her and I'm like, she has all her shit put together. I do, I love Mary Dove. She's so fucking hot. Yeah, I mean, you could take it to bed all you want, but I just need to, (laughs) I just need to know how she does her nails. (laughs) I hope she keeps them short for you. Hey. <laughs> I mean, how did we start this episode? We're No, we're going there. We're going there. <laughs> but also, uh, Lance is back. He rings the door. Mary, our love. Mary, my love, my dove. She goes, Mr. Lancelot. And he goes, himself. And I'm like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll take you. I'll take you to bed. You're good. <laughs> he goes in for tea. Uh, he had never met Jennifer before, even though he had secretly met Adele. Um, and he goes, ooh, this part really bothered me. Like, this is one of the few parts that I, like, for real, for real, like, underlined in my notes. Uh, he picks up, he goes, ooh, this chocolate cake looks scrummy. And then he picks up this entire wedge of chocolate cake and starts eating it. And I'm like, that? And none of it falls off which I understand is probably because it's like fucking TV food, but it also looks like the least moist cake that has ever been baked. And I just felt Remember, very this is 1953. Upset. This is pre-Britain nope. break-off. I just, you can't... Hmm. I didn't hmm. Sabrina? I didn't it hurts my soul. I know, but it's 1953. Whatever. They couldn't... The well, Brits couldn't cook until Jamie Oliver. So, what are you gonna do? What are you going oh, yeah, to do? Fair. I had to have dinner at Cambridge every fucking night when I didn't have fucking spag bowl. I swear to God, I learned to cook a pasta carbonara so I couldn't, so I wouldn't hear. Can we have spag bowl tonight? No, no, we cannot. We're gonna have a pasta carbonara, and I bought this expensive ass pancetta, and you're going to eat this fucking pasta carbonara. 
Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Unfortunately, that evening, Mary goes to the parlor. My love, my dove, goes to the parlor. <laughs> and Adele is dead. Once again, there's that Dutch chill close-up blue lighting. Mm-hmm. And then, in short order, Mrs. Crump bitching about Gladys being missing, goes to hang the laundry, and Gladys is dead. <coughs> With a laundry pin on her nose. Which, in the book, uh, and, see, it slightly, in the television show, it slightly drives Marple crazy. But in the book, Marple won't stop thinking about it. She thinks it's the most horrific. Mm-hmm. And when you read it, you can feel Marple's, like, just pure anger at whoever would do that. It's desecrating her body. So I understood it as well. Like, I understood her anger. But she kind of, she doesn't, she mentions it once or twice. But Mm -hmm. the reason why she wants to solve this case is for poor Gladys and the desecration of her, like, of her body. And so, like, you can really tell. Well, so here's a question. This is our first episode with Julia McKenzie as Miss Marple on this show. And for me, the first episode with her ever, because I have not watched this version of Marple. What did you think about her compared to uh, Gwendolyn uh, McEwen? Gwendolyn McEwen was slimmer and had a very um, severe face. And so... Yeah. And so Mackenzie... Uh, had a, I like it's McEwen and Mackenzie. Mackenzie had a friendlier face. So, she does. That square jaw. <laughs> yeah. And so she has a kind of, but it's kind of a rounder face with softer cheeks. And McEwen, mm-hmm. um, like, like I said, she had a very severe face. And she's always, she always had a severe face. Looking at older pictures of her, yeah. she always had a severe face. And, Bless her, she died in 2015. Here's here's to you, Geraldine. Um, she was 82. Aw, and she had a stroke. That makes me that Aww. makes me sad. Um, so um, so she's always uh, Geraldine always had a slim face, always, and so like I was more comforted by Mackenzie's Marvel. I don't know. I don't know if Mackenzie could... I, I think my thing was with Mackenzie is I don't know if I got a lot of anger from her. That's the thing. Because of McEwen's spare face, you could see a lot mm. more anger. And that's what happens when you have thinner people like playing roles. And not that thin people should play every role, but like rounder people are just friendlier. They're friend-shaped. <laughs> yeah. I, I I don't I just don't know if Mackenzie could have pulled off Nemesis. No, no, Mackenzie was not a Nemesis, but she was a Bertrams. She could have been a Bertrams. She could have done a great Bertrams. I think you're right, and I think maybe that worked okay for this particular episode because she does. This is such a clowny episode. She cares so much about Gerald Dean. No, it's not her fucking name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gladys. Gladys. <laughs> Geraldine is the other novel. She cares, she cares so much about Gladys. And she's so, she's just kind of grandmotherly and just kind of there. And it's very grandmotherly mm-hmm. to Inspector Neely. So she does a good job. 
and she would have done good in Bertram's because she's an older woman remembering good times, right? So um, mm-hmm. this was a good episode for her to be introduced in, but yeah, she could not have done a nemesis, and she does Caribbean mystery, and she does it poorly. I gotta say, Mackenzie, I I like McEwen because Marple is all about justice, and when you have a spare faced woman who's beautiful, she was beautiful in her in her day, like she was gorgeous, but. She was also a comedian. She was funny. Huh. She was like, her job was to be funny. Yeah, I I definitely think Mackenzie's like softer demeanor plays a lot into how Marple interacted mm-hmm. with people in yeah. this one. Like, for instance, she hits it off immediately with Pat, Lance's wife, mm-hmm. and the way she interviews people is a little bit more... I would say, like, she's not as, like, I'm definitely trying to find stuff out about you. She kind of more lets people come to her and talk to him. There's a good scene with Jennifer where Jennifer is just, like, confiding Mm -hmm. about how hard it is for her to be in the house alone all the time and how she keeps busy and stuff like that. Um, In the book, Jennifer is even more isolated because Percival and she live in a um, self-contained flat. It it's it looks like she's part of like a household in the story, but in the book she's she's mm-hmm. actually like off on her own. Other people that confide in her are Lance, who tells her about the old Blackburn mine. Ah, and, and he says something interesting that if you didn't catch the newspaper article with the uranium, he says West Africa mm-hmm. and. I'm sorry, Julie McKinney was in Midsummer. Oh, what? Yeah, she was in... Where was she She in? was in Down Among the Dead Men um, in 2006. And uh, season nine, episode four. I don't remember it. She's still acting. She she's got a series coming out this yep, year. She's still acting. <laughs> That's great. There's a series coming out about Brexit. And one of the actors from um, from this episode is going to be in it. Is it Mary? Awesome! Is it Mary Dove? Why would you talk about... But why? Why would you do that? Why? Why would... It's not Mary Dove, I can tell you that. Uh, I started watching, because I fell so deeply in love with My Love, My Dove, I started watching Cuckoo oh. last night, uh-huh. which is pretty funny. It's I didn't realize it was Andy Samberg, because like they're on like season three or season four or mm-hmm. something like that, and so the the trailer was for season three or season four. And mm-hmm. then I'm like, what the fuck? Where's, where's Andy Sandberg? Oh. <laughs> but it's pretty fucking funny. Nice. I, I'm i not a fan of Andy Sandberg, so I'm proud. I wasn't a huge fan of Andy Sandberg until I started watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And I don't and like Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I really, oh, I like it so much. I like it more for Andre Brower than I like it for anybody else. Yeah. but Because like, he should win an Emmy every fucking year. <laughs> He's so good. But the big thing that she finds out, that Marple finds out from Lance, is that the Mackenzie family came into the hall after the father Mackenzie died from a fever out in Africa um, due to investing in this mine with Rex, mm-hmm. uh, the dead Fortescue. Yes. And so she kind of goes off and like, does some digging around. She finds out that um, Gladys had a bow. She has some postcards in there. Mm-hmm. Um, she t- 
talks to Mary Dove, who, this was the line that really made me fall for her. Uh, take no notice of me. I'm a malicious creature. Oh. <laughs> Do me on it. Uh, just take me. Take me now. Just take me. See, it's, it's so funny that you want to have sex with her and I want to be her. And I don't know what that says about us. <laughs> it says that we have a marriage pact, girl. <laughs> That's, yeah, I mean, let's be, let's be, let's be very honest that um <laughs> she was very she was wearing very uniformly type things and i'm like mm-hmm. you are hiding all your figure under that drab green like outfit and I'm, i was so disappointed because she's oh. she's not she had a wonderful body i'm sure but um, if if she hadn't though she would have stolen the entire episode not that she didn't already continues his rounds of investigation and interviews by going to see the family solicitor because he has found out that while uh, that Adele had a will but she didn't want anybody else to know about it so he brings he goes and sees all these solicitors and he finally ends up at the family solicitor which happens to be a five British Actor. It's Paul Brook playing Billingsley. Um, he's in Foil's War. Um, he's in. He's been working since 1969, but he shows up in season one, episode four of Midsummer Murders, and we actually discussed him in that. No, we didn't. We did. We totally talked about him because I feel like I saw him and I was like, you, you are the reason that we have this whole (laughs) thing. He's one of the reasons. And um, the thing about him is since he has that dead eye, he shows up in a lot of shit. But almost always as a solicitor. Almost always as a solicitor or... But he's always a minor character. It's kind of weird. He's never been like a... Maybe in Fort... Actually in Fort War he has a bit of a major role. But um, he is... Uh, he's one of those faces like the dude from the farmer's insurance. What's his mm-hmm. name? The farmer's insurance commercial I don't remember. Dude. Yeah. I mean, I know exactly who you're talking about. I don't know his name. Yeah. And he has that face where you're like, It's him! It's you! J.K. Simmons. Oh, I wrote Meta, five British actors. He is the reason. He's the reason. He's the reason for the season. Sabrina, do you know what's even more meta? What? He is in the 2005 version of Oliver Twist. <gasps> With the light! <laughs> and what musical do we get our five British actor drop from? <laughs> We're, we're done. We're absolutely Cheerio done. and be back soon. <laughs> I feel like we should maybe call it like anytime we see one of our favorite five British actors has passed away, we should call it, even though he's still alive. I don't know. We need to, he's still alive, but I feel like he, we need to name some sort of award after him. But we find out from Paul Brooks that the business was heading for the rocks and that... Uh, they thought 
Fortescue Sr. or Percival thought Fortescue Sr. had dementia and that Adele didn't inherit because she died too quickly. Mm-hmm. Percival did. Dun, dun, Pick's dun. disease is an actual disease. It's a it's a frontal lobe uh, dementia. Uh, Alzheimer's is memory. Pick's disease is behavior and personality, which is displayed, which Percival says that uh, mm-hmm. Rex definitely displayed, like a change in personality and change in behavior. So Pick's disease is an actual type of dementia. Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. There are types of dementia. And um, I have to be completely honest that um, uh, my grandfather died of complications due to Alzheimer's. And um, and he had he had an aneurysm, but he was dying for a long time. Was definitely, mm-hmm. but he had an aneurysm, and it's on both sides of my family. My grandmother died from complications due to Alzheimer's as well. So I'm actually legit. I'm not. There are two things that I'm really scared of: fire, like fire, like literally, like fire getting out, mm-hmm. of, out of control. My dad lives in California in Topanga Canyon, and there were fires very close to him this past. Uh, this past November and December, so um, mine too. Great, hey. And so, and then secondly, dementia. Like I'm scared of losing who I am because dementia, Alzheimer's, Pick's disease changes who you are as a person. And I'm pretty well mm-hmm. aware of my identity. I know I'm only thirty three, but like I have short term memory loss from uh from sleeping pills and um an accidental overdose so i have short-term memory loss and so i know that i'm going to get alzheimer's earlier than i should and so like those two things are very just like debilitating like debilitating fears for me so when they talk about pick's disease i googled it just to learn more about it and it's a it's a type of dementia that's different from alzheimer's and it's a rare type of dementia so i'm I'm okay with losing my memories. Like, I would prefer. I don't know. I feel like this is a little existential for a murder mystery podcast. (laughs) I feel like your memories really do inform a lot of who you are. They do, but they tell me what not to do. They tell me, like, I was not the greatest person. Like, people who know me today think I'm a social justice person, and I'm very, um, but... I definitely grew up with a lot of a lot of angst. Not a lot of abuse or anything, just a lot of angst and a lot of I was not raised I was raised by very stoic baby boomers. They skipped a generation. Mm-hmm. I'm 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 firmly in the millennials. My parents were older when they had me. So uh comparatively, I was raised by people who weren't raised with technology who weren't raised both of my family my father was raised by a sharecropper family and my mother was raised by a soldier with ptsd who had been taken prisoner of war so my parents had a lot of baggage and they put it all on me and being a mixed child being a child uh an interracial child is on top of that having to be a perfect minority or a good minority is on top of that so like um, rather not, actually. I'd rather keep what I have now. Like, I managed to get away from that by moving out at very early and getting away from my parents very early. 
being informed by who I was as a child and being reminded of all the shitty things I did, I don't like it. And But I can remember everything. And it sucks. It's Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, I think my point, though, very much so, is what the memories are important in... Uh, that's growing up, right? Like, that's growing up. I mean, I was not a... Like, I was also raised by... I wouldn't say emotionally distant, but I would say very, very stoic. Not stoic. They're very Midwestern. I was very raised by very, very Midwestern parents, which is, yeah. you know, you suck it up, you don't talk about your feelings, and, you know, you try not to be a burden on anybody else. No, no. And my parents weren't like that at all. My parents were very over-emotional, and that was probably the problem. <laughs> well, but that's what I'm saying. Like, so I think, I think, but... Also, like, I've had to unlearn a lot of the behaviors that I learned that I think everybody is in the midst of unlearning at the moment. And, and I just, I'm just saying that memories inform your personality. Like, I've, I've been reading up, actually, on Amnesia for another project that I'm going to be working on this spring. Oh, you mean you'll... <laughs> yes, that's what I want. <laughs> um... The special project and as of yet announced but reading up on it for that and like the idea there's a lot of amnesia patients who wake up and are completely different people yeah well you know what because your trauma informs who you are yeah and how you do like that's what it is your trauma informs who you are we all have imprints of our the biggest part of my trauma was my parents divorce and but it was really weird i was having a conversation with a friend and the reason my parents was divorced was because of adultery and I I never was angry at my dad. My my mother was very kind when she sat me down and said she didn't say, you know, your dad cheated on me. She was never anti my father. She was always good with the religion. But my dad had a lot of baggage and he's an alcoholic and all of this stuff. So it was really strange that I didn't have a bad childhood. But my dad committed adultery, and my my mother didn't deal with it, but she dealt with a lot of the emotional abuse from an alcoholic. No physical abuse, but my dad was very manipulative and alcoholic. So it was really strange. Like, Hey, mine too. So <laughs> I suffered trauma of the divorce. That is actually a mm-hmm. adverse childhood experience. But it's the only... And poverty. So the two... Aces, the adverse childhood experiences that I had were poverty and a parent with alcoholism and divorce. So three, actually. Whoa. <laughs> but only three. Like, when you take the aces quiz, if you have three, you... Only three. Yeah. You're pretty functional as an adult. You know, you're like, okay, well, yeah, that's going to be some... Does it count? Do them like... Multiple divorces stack up. Actually, yes. Asking for No, no. Each divorce is actually (laughs) a different traumatic experience. Cool, cool, cool. Great, great, great. Super cool. Great. (laughs) All right. You know what I'm going to do, Sabrina, since we've been talking for almost an hour and 40 minutes at this point? (laughs) You know who did it? Fucking Lance. Lance did it. Lance did it. Miss Marple figures it out. Uh, it had nothing to do with the rhyme. It had nothing to do with the Mackenzies. Lance fucking did it. That's what I'm just saying. <laughs> just to get that out. Yes. Lance did do it. And. Yeah. <laughs> Lance did it. Talk about traumatizing your children. Yeah, <laughs> Rex Fortescue. 
did a number. On all of his children, <laughs> but especially Lance. Did I figure it out? Yes. Because the thing, the uranium in whatever the fuck country, uh, whatever the fuck city it was, old mine. And then went... West Africa versus East Africa. East Africa. That's when I figured it out. I did not figure it out. I did figure out that Jennifer was Ruby McKenzie. I 100% figured that out. Uh, I knew something was off with Lance because he kept being too insistent about the Mackenzies and the Blackbird mine. Mm -hmm. I figured, though, that he was more trying to take, do, like, a hostile takeover of the company. Or I did, or even, like, when at the end, when he was like, oh, you can even throw in the Blackbird mine with my share. I was like, there, you're, you're scamming. Mm-hmm. You're definitely scamming the company. But I definitely thought it was just a scam. Mm-hmm. I thought, I thought Ruby had killed everybody. <laughs> it was weird because I figured it out. Uh, not just in the book. Not just because I had read the book, so I knew Lance was the killer. But also just in the, in the show, he always, um, he was like, we actually, there was a character like him in an earlier Marvel. Um, in oh, that fucking Danish woman. Oh, yeah, in An Ordeal by Innocence. Yeah, in Ordeal by Innocence, where he kept pushing off onto other people. When he got really angry at mm-hmm. Percival in front of Inspector Neil, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just tried a little too yeah. hard, so I could tell something was wrong with him. That I didn't 100% want to pin mm-hmm. the murders on him. Yeah, but you always have to pin the murders on the one that's doing that shit. For the same, <laughs> and in the same kind of way, he seduces this girl to do stuff for him. Yes. Yes. I mean, honestly, that was the more I didn't see it coming bit, mm-hmm. frankly, than the, the murder. Yeah. <laughs> Did you like this episode? Yeah. Pop Full Rye is my favorite book. And I love this episode. I just absolutely love it. I'm a big fan. I know it was weird. There were things I did not like about it, like Mr. Crump scene where he's doing the rhyme was bizarre. And I yeah, that was bizarre. It was just slightly too long. If she had just walked by and heard him singing the rhyme and then walked on. It would have been great. And there were other scenes like that where it was just slightly too long or too weirdly lit or things like that. But the story and the pace was good. Yeah, I thought, again, I I mean, we talked about it a little bit. I think the script was super tight. The uh, acting was pretty tight. Um, It was closer to the book than any of So the acting was going to be tight because it was literally just do this from the book. fuck that up but also I think they did a really good job of characters like characterization and matching actresses and actors to the characters and like obviously Mary Dove yeah (laughs) but the directing was a solid no no the directing was bad like the the plot was good the characters were good because they cleaved to the book well and they obviously were able to read the subtext I I agree I think I think if I was going to pick the I I probably wouldn't pick the watch this one again, but I would go back and read the book. Yeah, the book is really good. The book is really good. It's not anything like Nemesis. God. <laughs> even just, even the difference in, but this, Nemesis was a later book too. So it was probably mm-hmm. just her dementia. 
showing. Dementia all the way yeah. down. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like your wine? Uh, okay. The first couple sips were awful. But then it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. It needs food. This needs food. I've actually had the Apothic Red before, and I was like, it's an okay red. It needs food. It cannot be drunk by itself. Like, I I legitimately believe that this needs, this is actually a food wine. Or even a cooking one. But it needs, it needs not to be drunk by itself. That's what it is. I, I think that's a Critter Label one. Like, one that trades on the prettiness of the bottle. And I'm telling you, this is a fuck, it's not a Critter it's got an A and like vines and stuff. It's beautiful, and it's and it's gold embossed. I know it's that's what I'm saying. Those that's but that's called a critter yeah. label. It like trades on the label. That's the the term. For it was ten dollars. I should have gotten the, the the Moscato with the pastel watercolors on it. I'm just saying, <laughs> ugh, Moscato. I hate Moscato. I hate Moscato. So that's why I didn't get it. I fucking hate Moscato. <laughs> Hey, a wine we can agree to hate. <laughs> uh, I'm quite enjoying this Tempranillo. It's not the best Tempranillo I've ever had, but it is quite, quite tasty. And it's organic. So I think that's going to be better for me in the long run because it's got less of those sulfites or whatever the fuck's in them. And uh, I'm, yeah, I'd recommend it. I mean, if you have seafood or a good pasta carbonara, have this wine. Don't drink it by itself. It needs someone. Sabrina, this one has tasting notes on it. This one does too. It has a long-ass paragraph. Caramelized eggplants. What do you have? Apothic White is a refreshing... It literally has refreshing in all capitals. Blend with bright floral notes and vibrant flavors of peach and apricot that lead to a crisp balanced finish. So, you know, that's marketing copy. That's marketing copy. Mine's straight up... It has peach and apricot, so... Oh no, oh no, you got nothing on this. Caramelized eggplant and a spicy nose, soft, silky entry, and a dryish medium body, notes of sour cherry, watermelon rind, and oak-aged mossy earth. You literally lost me an eggplant. I hate aubergine. (laughs) Uh, You know, I feel like I could make this into like like a sexy... Poem. Like, I feel like this could be a sext. Caramelized eggplant and a spicy nose. <laughs> like, the, the, the advertising bullshit inspired by the Apotheca, a mysterious place where wine is blended and stored. As always, you can find us on our Twitters. I'm at Classlicity. And I'm at SDM Rights, where I talk more about communism. No, I don't. I, I retweet. <laughs> You should tweet more. You should That's tweet true. more about communism. I retweet people talking about communism. So, uh, there's a lot about <laughs> communism. And you can follow our official Twitter at Wine Murder Night. And you should have done that already if you haven't. Because we, because now I have to, we have to talk about what we're doing for our next five episodes, unfortunately. Exactly, because the premise of this show is that every five episodes, we start a new show and review what we review a new TV show. But you, the listeners, get to pick what we watch. And since we pick on the British so much, we decided to hop across the pond and pick on somebody our own size. So we are watching what next episode? Why the fuck? 
do you not like me? Is that what it is? I feel like everyone just is like, <laughs> oh, she said not to do it. So let's vote. We're watching fucking Psych. We're watching season one, episode one of Psych, which is aptly named Pilot. Yeah, like all American shows are. As always, you should subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you leave us a good review, we'll give you a cheers and shout out on air. As always, we would like to say what to Anton Koryakov? Spasiba, comrade. Spasiba. <laughs> he is the writer and performer of Simple Life off the album Restart or Restart. We're not sure. And the site that has the Creative Commons license took it down. So who knows? <laughs> But we love it. It's a great theme song. Thank you so much, Anton Koryakov, for letting people use it under creative commons. Till next time.